another episode of the More Than A Game podcast. And uh, we're having an exciting episode for you all today. We're joined by Australian basketball icon, Chris Anstey. And when it comes to the sport of basketball in this country, Chris Anstey is a name familiar with no doubt all of those basketball fans out there and a name we know extremely well. He had a 17 professional career playing the game at the highest level. Started with the Melbourne Tigers back in 1994. Included stints in Russia, Spain, and the NBA, where he was selected 18th overall in the 1997 drafts to become the first ever player in history to be drafted from Australia's National Basketball League. He's a two-time Olympian, and we'll chat to him a bit about that with the Tokyo Olympics just around the corner. He's a three-time NBL champion, two of those championships he was captain for, and also won the MVP. He's an Andrew Gaze medal winner back in 2002. So many achievements in the sport of basketball, uh, but he can now add best-selling author to his list of achievements as he's just released a book titled Tall Tales, What the Whiteboard Never Told Me, and we look forward to chatting to him about that as well. He's done it all. We're going to hear his story here today. Uh, Chris Anstey, welcome to the More Than A Game podcast. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm not sure about best-selling it. We've sold a few. But yeah. uh, let's hope we get there. It's a prediction, mate. I reckon it'll sell well. So, but uh, thanks for joining us today, mate. It's an honour to hear your story and have a yarn with you about your story and your life in the sport of basketball. But um, before we get to the book, which I'm keen to hear more about, I'd just love to know where it all began for you, how you got involved with the sport of basketball. Because I did read, and I forgot about this, that you're actually an up-and-coming uh, tennis player. That was your passion for quite a number of years. And um, you actually doubled, I believe, with um, Mark Philippoussis growing up. Uh, so where did it all change for you from tennis to basketball and how did you get involved with the sport? Yeah, literally by fluke. I, uh, my younger brother, um, who actually ended up playing a season of NBL at, at the Townsville Crocodiles, but mm-hmm. uh, he, he was playing, you know, at the time he must have been 15, but he was playing in a men's C-grade team at the local basketball stadium. They didn't have enough, t- enough players and he asked me if I could fill in and I repeatedly told him no and, and mum made me. And uh, so <laughs> I literally had no idea of the game. I'd never seen one. Wow. Um, so I went and filled in and on the way up, I'd sort of, I'd love to think that I had some form of motivation for trying as hard as I could outside of trying to prove that I was better than my brother and be a little bit upset at him for making me finish my study. But mm. um, no, I went and played and... You know, out of the dozen odd people in the stadium that day, one of the guys had an affiliation with the Melbourne Tigers Junior Program and invited me to come down. It took him a few months to find me because he didn't come up to me on the night, but I, uh, I, you know, accepted the invitation months later and was introduced to a, a coach named Des Middleton, who was you know, remains one of the most patient uh, and understanding junior coaches I've ever been around or seen as either a player or as a director of coaching later on in life. But um, he was incredible for me, Um, really took the time to teach me the game, to make sure that my habits were good. Um, Mind you, I walked into one of the best junior basketball teams in the country. Um, But that also, right from the first day, meant that I got a really first-hand look at how good junior basketball was meant to be and was really apparent as to where I needed to aspire to be because, you know, one of the... I suppose one of the biggest things, even today, and I've been coaching for a long time and I've been around a lot of parents, is they always want their kids to be the best player on a team and they change clubs and they change coaches, but I'm still of the old school that you don't learn if you're the best player on the court nearly as much as you do if, as if, if you're not. Um, so I was never the best player on the court, but I got to learn from some incredible people. Yeah, it's so important, I guess, um, to instill sort of key values and virtues around hard work and I guess for you saying that you weren't the greatest player on the court, a lot of the people I've had on the podcast, they speak about, and the common denominator with all of them, particularly the players and the coaches I've had on, is the hard work and the, you know, the work you've got to put in to get better. And um, I guess it's no different from you. Was that instilled in you from an early age? Yeah, I always worked pretty hard even when I played tennis and when I began playing basketball. I, I finished year 12 and uh, Al Westover was the coach of the under 20s so probably six or seven months in when I, I moved up to the under 20s which was still a thing in, in victoria back then yeah. uh in place of university where, where i deferred my studies i literally every single day went down to the old albert park basketball stadium with el west and we worked for hours and hours every day um 
So L was a massive part of it. Maybe he was brought up in the office. Maybe he just wanted to work, but he was incredible for me. Um, just the time and effort he put into me. And you know, the thing was, there was no one else in the gym. And it became, I, I learned pretty soon that what I was doing was more than what most people were doing. Um, and that felt good. But at the same time, I knew I needed to do more because I was so far behind. And it's always interesting. I, I knew how far behind I was, but... You, know, you learn later on when they, when the players you're playing against tell you stories about how they used to play paper, rock, scissors <laughs> to guard me or go against me because they knew they'd have a laugh and they have a bit of a joke. And, you know, I knew I was a long way off, but, uh, you know, I was too naive to probably even pick up on that. But, you know, slowly and slowly I, I caught up and slowly I passed a few. And, you know, yeah, you're right. I, I worked my ass off for years. Yeah. Just going back to those early years, so obviously you started the sport a lot later than most. I remember myself, um, it was the Sydney 2000 Olympics, which we'll come to. I remember being in steam watching you guys play. And it was in that moment there that as an 11-year-old, I said to myself, I want to be professional. Like, and I set it my dream to be able to make it as a professional. Didn't quite make it, but had some great experiences along the way. Um, so what stage did you think, I want to give this a good crack? Or was this sort of something you fell into or... Was yeah, I, I never did. My, my only goal, probably the first five, six years of playing, was I just wanted to keep getting better. Mm. Um, I, I never had the dream to play in the Olympics. I never had the dream to play in the NBA. I, I didn't even think it would be possible. Um, but what I knew I wanted to do was continually improve because mm. I could see Mark Bradkey, John Dorge, Dave Simmons, Tony Ronaldson, these guys who played the sort of position I played, I, I could see their skill set and I knew that I could do a lot of what they could do, but mm. I needed years, I needed to read the game better, I needed to be a hell of a lot stronger. So I just needed to get better. Um, and I always had a bit of a deal with dad and mum that I'd continue the play the game as long as I continued to improve. And I didn't know when that improvement would stop. But, um, you know, after, I guess it must have been two and a half, three years after having started the game, I met Brian Gorgian and he opened my eyes to a whole different level of where my game could go to if my work rate went to an entirely different level. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know you've had Jason Smith on as a guest and he was one of the crew that I was working with, Sam McKinnon and Frank Trumick. We all had really, really similar goals and, and we worked hard, we pushed each other hard and was only then that I really started thinking about representing the country and, and perhaps even making it to the NBA. And yeah. I was fortunate enough to be able to do both of those things. But if I hadn't, I think I'd be really comfortable sitting back knowing that I did absolutely everything I could to get towards that. And sometimes those linear, those linear goals don't happen, but what you learn along the way are enough. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you mentioned those plays there and that aspiration to start playing for your country and it must have happened so quickly for you because you're playing for Melbourne Tigers and around the likes of Andrew Gaze, Lindsay Gaze, Brian Gorgian. You played those early years in the NBL when it was booming in the 90s. Um, and then you get selected um, for the under-21 Australian national team. Uh, the Emus, they play at the under-21 Australian, uh, sorry, World Championships. And I want to touch on this because there's a bit of a fairy tale, not just for uh, Australian basketball, but Australian sport, I believe. And I remember watching the documentary that they did a few years later after this, um, after the championships, as I remember watching as a kid and, and loving it. But you mentioned some of those players, like you had up-and-coming uh, players that would become established boomers in, uh, I guess, yourself, Sam McKinnon, uh, Matt Nielsen, who's now assistant coach of the boomers, Simon Dwight, Scott McGregor, Aaron Traher, one of my favourite players growing up as well, coached by Ian Stacker. It was a loaded team. And there's, that's just naming some of the players there. What was that experience like? And for me, watching those documentaries in those games, I used to watch them back to back because I just loved that documentary they put together. Um, but not only were you just great players, but you worked so well together and had great chemistry. You beat the US national team in the quarterfinals and they had players like Andre Miller and Brad Miller in that team. Um, you beat Puerto Rico in the final. That must have been a highlight of your career being part of that environment and that um, having that opportunity. Yeah, it was. And, you know, there was an under-19 World Championships, you know, the, the years before that I was too old to play for because I was an age group older than a lot of the guys on that team. And, mm. you know, when the under-23s rolled around, I was able to be 
selected, you know, of course I was in that age, but I'd improved a lot as well. Mm. And so they, they always felt like there was unfinished business because at under 19 level, they won a silver medal and they came so close to winning our first ever men's international gold medal uh, in mm. junior or, or senior basketball. So I got to join a team that was driven. I got to join a team who had been together before and uh, you know, hopefully added to it. And when you look at who we added to that team, we were all big, so we added size. So mm. we added myself, Ben Pepper and Ben Melmoth. Mm. So three, you know, centres. Mm. Um, and we didn't start great. Um, you know, Frankie Drimmick went from being a starter to being a bench guy. Uh, Brad McKinnon ended up starting and he hadn't played much early on in the tournament. And, yeah, we lost games along the way and needed to win our final classification game just to make the quarterfinals and right. we're able to do that yeah. um you know we beat team usa and it's a, we always thought we could we played them in the lead up and yeah you know, simon dwight was the one he hadn't played a minute in our last classification game and there's, yeah. there's a lot of players who when they get benched go you know go into the tank a little bit but dwighty had one of the better individual games that I've seen him have and, and was huge against the USA in the quarterfinals. We actually blew them out. We, we beat them by double-figure points. And then mm -hmm. the only came up the other day was one of the biggest shots I've ever seen in person was Aaron Traher hitting the three on yeah. the buzzer to beat Argentina. And right, you look at their team, Manu Ginobili and Luis Scholar and the legends of the game and NBA veterans you know, mm. that played a lot of years over there as... An incredible win and you know Puerto Rico it almost felt like we were always going to win the gold medal once we got through the US and got through Argentina mm. Puerto Rico were tough but they weren't as tough as those two and, and they'd had the easier side of the draw we thought so mm. you know from a personal point of view I got into foul trouble I, I I think I played only about 20 minutes in the gold medal game but it remains one of my most memorable I'm sure it would for for Melmoth and Pepper as well, who probably played less when I was playing more minutes. So when you look at it after years that have gone past, we, we were the first team to do something that hadn't been, hadn't been done before. Mm. Um, it was an incredible tournament. The, the group was great. Um, I feel really privileged to come into a group that had come so close. And you know, to this day, it, it's nice to be able to feel like you positively contributed something and help others get to where they wanted to go as well. Mm. Yeah, it's fantastic, mate. It was such a great experience and um opportunity for you guys no doubt and to take home the gold medal would have been the icing on the cake but that tournament actually catapults you into the i guess the frame of the nba the eyes of scouts um you had a great tournament um and so 1997 you're actually drafted 18th overall into the nba draft the 97 nba draft by the portland trailblazers your rights are then traded to uh, dallas mavericks and you have the opportunity uh, to play in one of the best leagues in the world and also have the opportunity to play against or play with guys such as Dirk Nowinski. So what was that experience like, first of all, and the opportunity and, yeah, just um, how it came about to start? Your yeah, it, it, it came about, I mean, I guess you realise that people are watching when you don't know they're watching. And there, mm. George called a meeting with me one day back in late 96 and sort of said, you got to go and get yourself an agent. I'm sort of sick of taking these phone calls from overseas. <laughs> and, um, and so I was introduced to a guy named Leon Rose who had never had an NBA player before but represented Rick Brunson who was playing for the Adelaide 36ers at the time and mm -hmm. uh, became Leon's first ever NBA client and he ended up representing guys as high as LeBron James. He, he, he ended up running CAA management and he's now president of the New York Knicks so he's done well. And I keep telling him, actually telling him he owes me a job. But um, <laughs> no, so, so he started taking all these calls that I didn't know existed and he kept them from being a distraction, um, which was incredible. But mm. look, when, when I got there, we um, it, it was just the biggest, uh, I suppose, reality check. It was, a, I, was I was uncomfortable. I, I'd never seen anything like that level of athleticism. And mm. I went from being someone who, you know, by, by that stage, I was doing quite well in the NBL and felt like I could compete with most people in the league. And mm. Um, I went to being not very good again and I had to take another step really, really quickly. But, you know, the level of athlete, the level of speed, the, the level of resource they're able to provide you, whether it be 
game time, training time, staff, hotel, private jets. It's just a whole other level and a whole other world. And yeah. it takes some getting used to, um, but it's amazing what becomes normal, whether it's good or bad. So the NBA became normal. Um, I got used to that sort of travel. I got a little bit more used to that style of play. And you know, I was very you know, I was proud of some of the games, some of the wins we had because I'd come a long, long way in only a few years and uh, would have loved to, of course, stay for a little bit longer, but that wasn't the case. But uh, again, I'm really proud to do something for the first time. And at that stage, there hadn't been anyone drafted from the NBL to the NBA and with this Next Stars program, we're seeing it all the time. So uh, if in some little tiny way that that helped, then then that's also wonderful. But at the time it was certainly something I was very proud of, but something that straight away I knew I had to get back to work and catch up again. Absolutely. Well, just on that with the, the, the level of um, athlete and, and obviously it's a whole other world, as you said, the NBA, but We've seen the NBL over, and you've coached in the NBL post your career and uh, Melbourne Tigers and then for a while there, the Melbourne United team. But in your time playing and coaching and now looking at the league now, obviously we're never going to be at the NBA's level. It's a whole different world. But have you seen, you know, this is something that I've sort of wrestled with. People talk about the level of the NBL being greater than it's ever been before and there's arguments for that. But when I look at when you you played and you had the Andrew Gazes, Shane Heels, all these guys playing the league, like... Um, I still feel like maybe the professionalism of the league's better. Um, but what are your thoughts in terms of the level of ability in the NBL now and how much further does it have to go to start to get or to draw that, um, limit that gap between the NBA and NBA yeah. level? Look, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, uh, it's never going to get to the NBA. We, we can't afford it. We don't have the population to do yeah. it. The best players are always going to follow the money and that's absolutely how it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the level of professionalism. I'd defy anyone over the last 20 years of the NBL to, to say they worked harder than what we did at the Magic. Mm. We were lifting weights. We were running track. We were doing individuals. We worked. We took that whole thing to a new level under Brian Gorgian and Bruce mm. Gray and Steve Evans and these guys. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we saw the results of that. Um, look, the NBL is in a great space. It's on television a lot. They're paying the imports more. Um, you know, we'll always be restricted by the quality of the refereeing. Um, the, the way the game's officiated here in Australia doesn't allow the best athletes to be the best athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to see a lot more money invested into training the referees uh, to identifying the style of play that's even more appealing and not watching games from the free throw line. And if you do that, I think you see guys like Bryce Cotton go to another level, you get... You, you, you know, Casey Prather's a very good athlete, but he's not an NBA athlete. Um, you'll see NBA athletes come because you just don't get rewarded for being strong or athletic in the NBL while we're still flopping and falling down. So, yeah, we've got, we've come such a long way. We're we're probably one of the best ten leagues in the world. I think we can take another step because Australia is a desirable a desirable place to live. But mm. until we start rewarding our you know, strength and athleticism, those types of players will keep going to China, they'll go to Europe, they'll go to South America before they come to Australia. I think the the imports who come here, the ones who are really successful, the ones who are able to get on the rim, get to the free throw line and score from the perimeter. But, hmm. you know, the, we, we want some really great wings here as well. We want some genuine bigs here as well. We, we, we haven't had that yet. So... It's in a great place. The game's being watched. Uh, a lot of eyeballs on it around the world. The Next Stars program's been successful in some elements, but you know we haven't seen a, a team with a genuine Next Star draft about to be draftee make the finals yet. Mm. Every time we've got one, they pull out of the season before the end. So there's steps to take, um, but we've taken some a lot of steps in the right direction. Yeah, just on your point about the refereeing, like something Andrew Bogut's spoken a lot about. I've been listening to his podcast and the state of the refereeing, and interesting to see. Interesting to see that you agree with that. So, is it uh, is it just making them more full time, or um, in that sense, because there is only one or two professional, or oh, sorry, full time referees at the moment? Um, you mentioned a few, um, I guess, issues to resolve it, but is that one thing that can be put in place to ensure that there is? Uh, yeah. It has to be. I mean, you mentioned we've got full-time athletes, we've got athletes making over a million dollars a year now, uh, and we've got part-time referees who we become dependent on for our careers. And, 
Um, yeah, they need, we do. We need to invest in them. We need them to be full-time. Uh, we need them to have a better understanding of, you know, different types of bang-bang play. There doesn't have to be a whistle. They have to understand physicality um, better. Mm. You know, poor defenders get rewarded for falling down too often and, and good athletes get penalised. Um, right. There's still a long way to go, but my overriding thought, and it's been the same for a lot of years now, is that we need to reward highly skilled athletes, not slow-footed defensive liability players. And once we get that done, that's what we want to come to see. Um, mm. As it is right now, we jump in people's lines in, in the backcourt, we're rewarded with charges, we fall down with minimal contact and we're rewarded. We have to stop rewarding it mm. and we have to start rewarding positive plays, offensive plays, highly skilled players um, again, I think you'll see it go to a different level once we invest in the officiating. Mm. Interesting thoughts there, mate. So going back to the NBA now, um, hopefully we'll see what happens with the NBL and um, short turnarounds. So we uh, look forward to the NBL starting up again in the next few months. But um, once you finish your time with the Dallas Mavericks, you're there for a couple of seasons, uh, you then move to the Chicago Bulls. And this is just after Jordan, Pippen, Robin, that whole era comes to a close. And we obviously all watched the Last Dance documentary and saw how that unfolded. You come into that scene just after all that, and it's sort of like rebuilding. You know, the management apparently want to rebuild and start fresh. So what was it like coming into that environment and, um, but also coming into an organisation like the Chicago Bulls? At that time, it was obviously a worldwide brand and um, no doubt still such a big, um, uh, I guess, franchise at that time. What was that experience like? And, uh, particularly coming on the back of uh, those championships and those caliber of players. Yeah, exactly. That the brand was incredible. The, the fact that you're able to pull on a Chicago Bulls training uniform and then uniform and then mm. walk into the training facility and the championship banners and trophies are right there is is incredible. You, you feel a part of. I agree. One of the best sporting franchises in history, um, mm. in the history of all sport. Um, but it, it, was, it was at the same time it was it was clunky and it was disjointed because we had Tim Floyd as a new coach trying to prove himself, yeah. um, Elton Brand and Ron Artest coming into the league trying to prove themselves, and then guys who'd had supporting roles with the talented players trying to prove that they deserve bigger roles. Right. Um, someone like me coming in to try to prove that they deserve to be in the NBA. So everybody was. While they're all great people, we all had our own individual agendas and I don't think we were bad people for doing it. It was just the way it was and the way it felt. And, mm. you know, we were on track to become the worst team in NBA history at one stage. It was so bad. And, mm. um, yeah, we weren't pulling together. Um, we didn't really have any cohesion within the group and it was a long, long year. But, um, yeah. yeah, it was a tricky one. And then, you know, for me, the, the way it ended up, you know, always wanted to come back and play in the Sydney Olympics, of course, and they wanted me to stay in the weight room and get stronger again and invest time with the staff. But at the same time, they weren't prepared to guarantee a contract. So, you know, the, the, the decision to play in the Olympic Games was a no-brainer. It would have been a tougher one if they had have handed me a few million dollars and said, here's a two-year contract if you don't go. Yeah. Um, that would have been a different choice. I'd like to think I would have made the same decision, but... Mm. That was taken out of my hands and, you know, I got to experience Sydney. Yeah. And apparently, um, an incredible experience. Um, as I said, I was there as a child, I was a kid um, watching and being a part of the Olympics. It was a great experience for the city. And I, you mentioned Jason Smith being on the podcast. He just remembered that experience as one of the athletes and um, being a part of the village and just the patriotism around the place. He's never seen anything like it. Um, what was that experience like for you? You also played in the 2008 Beijing Olympics as well, but um, being an Olympian, obviously with the Olympics just around the corner, you can probably reflect on those experiences and reflect upon how great they were and what a great opportunity you had. Yeah, the, the, the patriotism, it's a great word. It was really, really noticeable and walking into that Olympic stadium game one was incredible. Mm. Um, yeah, we were, right front, we were front and centre as well because Andrew Gaze was, was carrying the flag and yeah. we got to experience that and, you know, it was a really proud moment um, being a part of that group walking in and, mm. yeah, you're right, walking around the village, rubbing shoulders with those type of athletes, it's incredible and to do it for the first time in Sydney was 
was great. And it's, it's interesting, you learn things, that, yeah, your best experience of being a part of that opening ceremony, what you don't realise is that you're on your feet and out of your room for about eight hours on that day. And we had a game, our first game were exhausted and we lost. And, you know, to go to Beijing for a second, you know, Bogut and I tried to convince the team not to go. We had Croatia first round the day after, who we'd beaten twice in the lead-up. So Bogut and I sat in the room and watched on TV and the team went. And, you know, I, of course, I take, I take on board that, you know, they want to experience everything. But the biggest distraction at an Olympic Games is the Olympic Games. Mm. And I, I've never been a part of another massive game that I've gone and been on my feet for hours and hours a day before mm. um, and not practice. So... You know, when I got to Beijing, my, my perspective was different. But even in Sydney, we found a way to battle back. Um, you know, Jason mentioned the patriotism. And you get a sense of it in the village, but you're so cut off from the real world that you, you don't really see it. So we had a couple of bad losses, and, and Sam McKinnon and I decided just to leave the village and go to a bar and have a beer and watch another another sporting event on TV. And, mm. you know, we had a morning game, we had the day off, so we went and sat amongst the public. And that's when we really got a true sense of what it was and yeah. came back and we went on this winning streak and um yeah we so well that we we made the last four of course and the only one team doesn't win a medal and those last two games were two of the most disappointing days of basketball in my basketball career and I know I assume that that would be the same for most of the guys on the team so it's incredible how mm. one of the best moments in your life can turn around really really quickly and become one of the most disappointing just two weeks later because we weren't able to achieve what we set out to achieve and we weren't able to do something that no men's team had ever done before and that was to win an international medal at senior level. So uh, an incredible moment but also incredibly disappointing when it all came down to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting, it's interesting to hear you put it that way. Um, but I was at the game uh, where it all turned around for you guys, I guess, the Russian game. I remember Andrew Gates hitting that. Shot on the buzzer or close to the buzzer to win the game for you after you've been winning by 20 points it seemed in that game. They came back, the Russians. But um, again, that was the moment where I set my, I want, you know, said to myself, I want to play at that level and play for Australia. But looking at that team you guys had and reflecting on the current boom we've set up now with all the NBA talent, for me, arguably, the team you were a part of at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games is right up there in terms of the best Australian Olympic team or Australian boomers teams ever. Um, only because of the calibre of players. You had Andrew Gay, Shane Hill, obviously you know, veterans at that point, played in the NBA yourself, just coming from the Bulls. Luke Longley, Jason Smith was there as a rookie, Ricky Grace, uh, Mark Bradke, like it was a loaded side. Um, what were your thoughts about if you guys matched? I know people don't like to talk about the you know, matching up against different eras, but if you guys were to play that team against the current boomers, who do you reckon would get up? Uh, it's, it's always an interesting one. The, the style of game is so different. Um, yeah, pa Paddy Mills is one of those, I think, generational players where you look at the way he plays and the way he goes about it. I think he would have been extraordinarily successful in any era. Um, you know, I think that the way that that group played, you know, the boomers right now don't have a Luke Longley, especially with Andrew Bogut out. And, um, yeah, they don't, you know, Shane and Andrew were able to, to really create their own three-point shot. I think we've got other guys. Joe Ingalls is an incredible shooter, but maybe doesn't quite create his own shot as well as those two guys. But, look, it's it would be a fascinating matchup. Um, <laughs> you'd, like, you'd like to think it would be really close, but... Um, no, I, I don't know. Uh, the game of basketball has come a long way. It's played differently. Um, sure. You know, I think one thing that the current group of, uh, of boomers has an advantage is that I've mentioned the officiating already. When we got to play in a national competition, we need to do it for as long as possible because even back then, we didn't get away with what you, the rest of the world was getting away with defensively. We weren't accustomed to the physicality of the way that we're allowed to be guarded. Um, because we're used to working the referees and getting to the free throw line. Um, so there was always an adjustment period. And I think, yeah, the guys that we have at the moment who play internationally have certainly have that as an advantage over what many of us did because they get it every day of their basketball life and they're accustomed to it. Interesting, yeah. And um, just going back to that game where you lost against Lithuania, uh, the bronze medal match, Luke Longley was out for that game. Do you think, had he been in there, that you would have had a better chance of winning or would Lithuania just that 
just too good on the day. No, both. Uh, yeah, they they were too good, and, and France were too good as well. Um, any team with Luke Longley in it is a better team. It's as simple as that. You you take away your, one of your best rebounders, your best rim protectors, your most your, your highest IQ player, perhaps, um, and the guy that really rubber stamps or enables the talent around him to do what they do. That's what Luke was great at. Mm. So yeah, we might have been a, a chance, but that's over the years you learn that to win a medal or to win a championship or to win anything requires a little bit of luck and oftentimes you don't know you got lucky by being injury free until you, you look back and we didn't have that luck on that in that particular tournament we missed yeah. luke and yeah. uh but we were close and we're as close as any olympic campaign's been since mm, that's right yeah i remember watching as a kid again it's been so guarded you missed out but uh when we had a great experience luke longley um had the opportunity to play with him obviously chicago bulls legend was part of that sort of dynasty and then um, for you coming into that team and I, I know in your book you talk a lot about the the people that have influenced your life and um, obviously had an impact on as you say how you see the world now and and the life lessons you've been applied for your life uh, to your life how influential was Luke Longley in your life particularly at that time and at the Olympics yeah well before that I, I got drafted in 97 as you mentioned and got there later on in the year and within the first two weeks of me getting to Dallas, my phone rang and it was Luke. And I'd never spoken a word to Luke Longley in my life. I never met him. Mm. And it was just Luke reaching out to another Aussie, offering advice, which he gave me. That's awesome. Um, opening the door to his house when I, if and when I came to Chicago and mm. um, just availing himself to be there if I wanted if I, if I ever wanted to pick up the phone and mm. you know he didn't have to do that and I'm sure I'm not the only NBA player over the last two decades that he's done that to or the time he was there that he's done that to and that's just the sort of guy Luke has always been in the limited time I've spent with him he's generous he's, he's generous with his time he's generous with his money he's generous with his advice um he doesn't have to be asked to provide that he doesn't and yeah, he was a part, as you mentioned, of one of the most successful basketball teams in the history of all sport. And mm. he even still, and maybe because of that as well, but he sees basketball and I think he sees life through a, a broader lens than what many of us do. We get very single-minded um, as sports people oftentimes. And Luke has been, I would imagine, a, a really positive influence for so many players who've put on the Australian singlet or that have been around him, you know, in the NBA. So... He was a ripper, as have been so many other people. Like you said, I, I wanted to write about them. Like the lessons that you, you know, the lessons you take and the stories you tell often don't come from what happens on the court. Mm. You know, most of them come from what happens off the court. And that's, mm. that was the premise of the book. I wanted to share some stories about great people who influenced me off the court. And, you know, as the title says, it's what the whiteboard never taught me. We never, we never learn about that on the court. It's in the, the moments, the days, the, the surroundings and the events around the around basketball that you do a lot of learning and a lot of growing up. Mm. 100%. And let's, I just want to touch on um, a personal reflection of yours, I guess, to promote the book. And uh, this is what you write. Um, it says, I never thought my journey was special. I never thought my journey was interesting. I was too busy working as hard as I could to improve, first at tennis and then at basketball. I felt like I was drowning at times and getting ahead of myself at others. I knew all along, however, that my journey brought me into contact with some amazing people. These people taught me many lessons on and off the basketball court that helped shape the person I am today. Uh, they moulded me. They moulded my philosophy around finding our own personal best and broadened the lens I now see the world through. These are the people whose lessons I felt a responsibility to share when I began coaching. After all, not everyone had been lucky enough to spend the time around them as I did. These are their stories. So some great reflections there, mate. And I, I can't wait to get a hand, uh, my hands on the book to read it myself. But just on the point there, you said, I felt like I was drowning at times and getting ahead of myself and others. Um, obviously, in the times we're in, a lot of people may feel like they're drowning. Different circumstances of life may obviously make them feel that way. But uh, what made you write those words and what were the circumstances that led to you feeling like um, that and how did you get out of it? Yeah, just being such a you know a fish out of water when I first came to basketball, and then knowing how far behind I was, and at times it felt you know insurmountable that I could catch up or or get to where I, I perhaps wanted to go, and um, you know a very 
good friend and mentor of mine who passed away a few years ago now, Dickie Custison, always used to say that uh, yard by yard it's hard, inch by inch it's a cinch. And sometimes we lose sight of what's right in front of us because we get so caught up with how far away from something in the future we are. So, you know, really locking in the day-to-day has been something that I've been able to do for a long time now because that's what we control. And, you know, when I talk about goal setting with a lot of people, I talk about what can you do today and then what can you do tomorrow? And a lot of times the rest of it will take care of itself. And, you know, on the flip side of that, you know, as I said, there were times when I thought I was, you know, probably better than what I was and I'd, I'd gone past some people and I felt, you know, I was arrogant. I uh, probably said things I regret over the years and, and left some people behind. Um, and, and that was part of learning as well is that you find out who your real mates are. Um, you find out how you really want to treat people and who you are and sometimes it takes... And that's why the magic were great as well. You know, I've had... The, the teammates who I consider my best teammates were the ones who beat me down and called me up on that stuff. And, you know, even Gorgian called me in a room and goes, mate, you're the, one of the most selfish players I've ever had the last couple of weeks. Wow. And I didn't, I didn't see it. Yeah. Um, but I knew the NBA guys were there and I was so caught up in trying to advance what I was doing that I'd gone away from the group a little bit. Mm. And again, I hadn't seen it. And years later, Gorgian said it wasn't that bad, but I could see it happening. Mm. And I wanted to stop it before it became a thing. And mm. that's, you know, that, that's what these real coaches and probably great teammates do is they're, they're honest with you, good and bad. Um, and the magic was the best environment I've been around in that space. But at the same time, it's something that I try to bring to at whatever level it is to any group I'm around is, is sort of honesty and transparency. And um, there's a lot of people who aren't that, around sport they'll tell you what you want to hear they'll they'll sell something that's not real but um no like i said i I learned from so many great ones and oftentimes we only hear you know i like my sayings empty vessels make the most noise and we get caught up in listening to bad advice oftentimes and the stories that i wrote about for me have been great advice and it's not my advice it's advice i've learned i wanted to share it yeah that's so good mate and just going back on Gorge, obviously, it's the mark of the man. You sort of gave us a glimpse into the kind of character he is. Obviously, a great basketball coach and knows the game amazingly. And you can see that now with the Boomers as they go into the Tokyo Olympics. But, yeah, just the stories I've heard about him. I've only met him once. But um, even in that time, just, you know, he shook my hand and said, G'day, I'm Brian. Like, for me as a teenager, I was like, yeah, I know you're Brian. But, you know, he's just genuine like that. And as you said, he... Um, just has a way of sort of um, come alongside players and it's almost like Wayne Bennett in NRL. You hear of uh, how he comes alongside players and uh, supports them and they're like best mates. So what is it about Brian Gorgian for you that makes him such a great coach and person? Uh, his relationships and his ability to... Well, he, he genuinely cares about his people, whether they're players or staff. Um, so, again, another saying, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. You always knew that Gorge cared for you. Um, mm-hmm. He was a master of putting, if there were any, if there was a sense of any clashes within the playing group, you know, you only learn it years later is that I remember his house was an open house to the players. He, he got mm-hmm. to know us and our families. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd find myself at a, a dinner t- around a dinner table at Brian's house and Amanda's house with, um, you know, it might have been Frankie Drimmick and Tony Ronaldson and myself and our partners at the time and you don't even talk basketball or a tiny little bit. Mm. But then you look back and you think, yeah, there was a bit of niggle between the three of us for a little bit and he'd seen it and this was his way. It wasn't calling it out on the court. It was just putting us together away from basketball and talking to us as human beings and getting to know us better. Yeah. And, you know, you, you hear about the work rate Gorge has been able to get out of his team for so long it's that you know, you, you wouldn't question Gorge because you trusted him. You'd run through a brick wall for him with, you know, Chris, run through a brick wall. Okay. With other coaches, <laughs> with other co- because I knew that I could because it was Gorge asking. Yeah. But with other coaches, like, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll try to find a way around it, dig under it. I'll, I'll do that one tomorrow. But, mm. yeah, because you don't have that same sense of belief in the, in the leadership that you're getting. But with him, mm. yeah, and he's not the best X's. You ask him, he's, not, he's never been, or back then he wasn't the best X's and O's coach. Right. But his assistant coaches always were, or the, the things that he wasn't great at, mm. he was never afraid to put the absolute best people around him. You know, a lot of people are scared to do that because it'll 
highlight their weaknesses. God always knew what he wasn't great at and always people put people who were great at that around him. And yeah. um, No, he, look, he's a, he's a genius in his relationships. He's a genius in the, the rate he can get you to work and he's a genius in so far as in his ability to increase your self-belief um, yeah. because he'll guide you and show you it's possible through the work. That's awesome insight, mate. And uh, just touching on your, your history with Gorge, you actually matched up against him. You come back to the, the NBL in 2005, you joined the Melbourne Tigers again. And for the next four seasons, you're basically, well, I guess, two of those seasons during the finals against the Sydney Kings, who he's coaching. Um, the other two against the Brisbane Bullets and South Dragons, again, Gorge. Uh, but in particular, that, that rivalry with the Sydney Kings, I remember growing up watching that and it, it looked like such a great rivalry in, if I can take you back to 2008, I think the series was, and Gorge is coaching. Um, you guys are playing to win the series or the championship down in, in Melbourne, your home court. Sydney Kings come back and win. It's that uh, famous clip of Gorge running around the court with his fist pumped and raised. What was going through your mind at that point as a team? Because when I reflect on um, that championship and don't be deceived by the jersey behind me. I was a Razorbacks fan back then. I wasn't actually a Kings fan. But watching that series, the self-belief in your team and the ability to come back and then win it um, after that defeat was something else. So what was going through your mind? Yeah, we, we, were, we were gutted. I mean, we, we, we felt like we gave them the championship. We, we got ahead of ourselves for a quarter. You know, we're up big in the third quarter. Yeah. Um, and I was sitting at the restaurant later, I hadn't said a word. No one spoke up, like literally not a word. No one spoke. Yeah. Um, and I was a co-captain with Darren McDonald and I, mm. all I could think of, it, it was like one of those light bulb moments. I wrote about it in the book, this mm. game in particular. And um, I remember thinking, if somebody had said to us at the start of the year that we're going to give you one game to win this championship, you know, you've got to go to Sydney, but you're in game five. Mm. Win or lose to win or lose the championship, would you take it? Yeah. And absolutely we would. We'd do anything to be where we were. And it, it occurred to me, it didn't matter how we got there. You know, if we had been 2-0 down and played two incredible games, it would have been the same opportunity, but here we had it. We had one opportunity for one game in Sydney to win the championship. So I texted that to the boys. I still hadn't spoken. And I just wanted them to let to, to know what I was thinking, and I wanted them to be shitty, but I wanted them to know that we've been handed the same opportunity we might have taken at the start of the year. It doesn't matter how we got here. Mm. Be shitty tonight, but turn up tomorrow ready to go. Mm. We didn't practice. We watched film. We understood so what we did wrong, but more than anything, we knew that we had to play every single possession in Game 5 as best as we, we, we thought we took a few possessions off in Game 4. Mm. Um, it was one of the proudest games I've been a part of. To every single guy contributed. Every single guy made big shots or made big plays. And, you know, we were, we were up 10 or 8, 9, 10, 11 late. They, Sydney called a timeout. I still remember, this ain't, this is not over. It would, two more stops or whatever it was, but it was a real every possession mentality that series. And, yeah, it was a hell of a win. Mm, absolutely it was. It was a fantastic game. Well, again... Had a soft spot for the Kings, but it was really something to see you guys coming through and winning it. But after coming back to the league, um, just going back to when you came back, obviously at the time in the NBA, you had a few year seasons in Europe. Um, come back to the NBL. And funny enough, you actually come back into the Melbourne Tigers setup after Andrew Gaze is retired, Lindsay Gaze is retired. So not to compare the Chicago Bulls with Melbourne Tigers, but you've gone from uh, playing with the Bulls on the back of Jordan retiring, Phil Jackson moving on, and then coming to one of the you know, biggest names at the time, Melbourne Tigers in Australian sport. One of their icons is retired and his dad, the coach. So what was it like coming into that environment? But then how did you see the league change from when you left to when you came back? Because you left at its peak, I guess, in the 90s when the crowds were booming, popularity was huge. And then coming into the middle of the 2000s where popular popularity was at an all-time low, um, so what was that experience like coming back into the league? But yeah, it, it, yeah, it was exciting. And the fact that Gaze, Copeland, Bradkey, Lindsay had all left, uh, mm. it was a, a clean slate. And I got to play with Al Westover again, who I mentioned had done so much for me early yeah. days. So it felt like we'd come full circle. Mm. Um, yeah, I always find it interesting when people talk about, you know, the 15,000 seat, you know, full stadiums and mm. playing against the Giants, playing against the Tigers, the Magic, but... Yeah. We also had games where we played the Canberra Cannons and there were two and a half thousand people at Rod Laver Arena. Sure. But we don't talk, 
you know, I think we see the popularity of that era through rose-colored lenses a little bit. I think right. it it dropped away a little bit, but not as far as what people think. So it was exciting. Um, yeah. The fact we were able to make four consecutive championship series for a team that everyone thought was going to be rebuilding was incredible. And, you know, it marked the most successful period in the club's history over a four-year stretch, which was yeah. incredible to be a part of and incredible to see some of the guys who'd had smaller roles uh, with those other guys, Steve Hall, Daryl Coletto, Dave Thomas, even Rashad Tucker and Darren McDonald, who, yeah. you know, most people thought he'd retire, that their roles were smaller with Gaze Copeland and Bradkey. And mm. every single one of those guys was incredible. And every one of those guys, in my mind, had better years in those following four years than what that had previously. Mm. Yeah, again, a great side as well. And you leave, we finish up with the Tigers, you then move into coaching. Um, you coached the team for quite a number of years. How much of the philosophies had you, like you talked about Gorge and influence our Westover, how much did you bring um, their philosophies into your coaching? Um, but what I find is that you've got to find your own identity, don't you? Like you can't sort of be, you can take some good things from them, but you've got to discover who you are and your identity as a coach. So how hard was that trying to incorporate stuff you learnt throughout your years of playing? And then, but also trying to find yourself as a coach as well. Yeah, it was, it was tricky. And yeah, there, were, there wasn't much of a gap between playing and coaching. And I was still coaching some of the guys I'd play with, Tommy Greer, for example. Yeah. And so that, and then Dale Collette, that was tricky. Um, yeah, because they, on top of them having to look at me as a coach, they knew some of the stuff we did that the coaches didn't know we did when I was playing. So yeah. um, you, you, you sometimes in your own mind seem a little bit hypocritical, but. No, look, we were going well. We missed the free th- uh, we missed the finals by a free throw in our first year, and we hadn't been in the finals for five years as a club. We made the semi-finals the second year and lost in three games to Adelaide on their home floor, and we were killed by injuries in that series. And um, yeah, we felt like we were improving, but unfortunately, that continued development was taken out of my hands by the club, and they wanted to go a different direction. Um, you know, my cell was always, I was going to continue to improve as a coach as the, as the group improved around us. But um, yeah. they were in a hurry and they made a choice and they, you know, they got DMAC in. But, yeah, they'd been yeah. speaking to a whole bunch of other coaches while I was still coaching, which was a little bit unsettling. But, yeah. no, look, my philosophy has evolved since then. Um, you know, it was a work in progress is probably the easiest way to describe it back then. Yeah. Did you feel a little bit jaded from that experience? I mean, it was only one game into the season that they got rid of you, wasn't it? So do you feel like you, sh- you, you should have been afforded a bit more time to sort of stamp your mark uh, on the Yeah, team? yeah pr- probably. But I knew going in that, that they'd, put, they'd invested in the rebound and mm. I'd had people calling me saying they'd offered other people my job and I'd had someone that they offered my job to call me and say, what's your back? So that was dis- that was probably disappointing. It's a world sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. And then, look, at the, the end of the day, it's a club that I captained. I started my career, I captained. Mm. As much as they say it wasn't a new club, it was a rebrand, it felt like a rebrand because I think mm. if it was the same club, I think you exit people better than that. Yeah. But, um, no, look, it's it was an interesting time. They were, they were in a hurry and you're right, it's ruthless no matter how successful a, a period of time you've had in a different capacity at the club but um no look it's uh, i learned lots from it um mm-hmm. the, I've, I've used it at, inter, at international level with juniors and state level as well but no it was uh eye-opening for sure yeah, definitely do you still agree with the decision to make it melbourne united or i mean again you're leaving behind a great franchise great brand in the tigers yeah, I think they missed a step. I th- I'm a Western Bulldogs fan, and the step that I think that the club missed was going to the members and trying to save it first, not blindsiding them with a, a rebrand. And you know, all the AFL or most of the AFL teams, they've been managed to sa- they've managed to save because the public doesn't know the the dire straits that the club's in. So mm. Hawthorne survived, the Bulldogs survived. Yeah, there've been other teams on the way that have survived. I'd like to mm. think that we could have opened it up to members and sponsors, letting them know how close to in, uh, you know, extinction the club is, oh. but we've got a chance to save it. And I think that's what got a lot of the Tigers fans offside that they were blindsided yeah. by it. Yeah. Do you have any other aspirations to coach in the NBL again? No, look, I've learned never to say never to anything. So uh, I enjoy coaching. I enjoy helping people along the way and yeah. always feel like I've got a little bit to offer, but that's for someone else to decide. Yeah, fair enough, mate. Well, just as we finish up, you mentioned... Um, just going back to what your comment about goal setting, I'm interested to gauge, gauge your thoughts on that as someone who's 
coached and played at the highest level. I've been actually mentoring to a, a program called Kids Hope myself where um, I come alongside a young child who's um, maybe struggling at school and to spend an hour a week with him. And something I've been talking about with him is goal setting because I realise how important it is for these kids who don't have any sense of purpose to set your own sense of purpose and work towards something. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned from goal setting that you've incorporated into your life and continue to do on a regular basis? I think it's to, I think it's to say yes to more. That you know nothing that I ever achieved, I achieved sitting on the couch and, and saying no to. I, even the, the days I thought I wasn't going to have a good time or I was going to fail, mm. I got up and did it. Um, like that first game of basketball, um, you know, it's really easy to say no to things. And once you get out there and you get off the couch, um, you never know who you'll meet. Um, you might go through months of not meeting anyone in particular that's going to impact your life, but then you might meet that one person who does. Mm. And so my advice is always say yes to more. Um, it's okay to fail. And if mm. you don't have a good time, you can walk back and you're still in the exact same position you would have been if you had said no. Mm. Um, but, but reach out to people. Um, yeah, be vulnerable. Um, we don't have to be tough. It's okay to be vulnerable and share what we're worried about, share what we're not good at. Yeah. Um, if, if people make it hard for you because of that, they're not the right people to be around, but you might find you connect with other people who you should be around. Yeah. That's good advice, mate. Sage advice. Um, and just finally, as we finish up, just some around your achievements in the sport, obviously no greater achievement than being a dad. I know you're a dad of three <laughs> beautiful children, so that's obviously most important as a father myself. Um, but how have you been able to translate what you've learned in the basketball court into everyday life. So obviously that's the aim of this podcast, more than the game. Has there been key things that you've taken from um, you know, your journey in, in professional sport into the fatherhood um, or whatever? Yeah, letting, letting them make mistakes, letting them make their own choices, you know, being a safety net for them, but letting them fall and letting them fail. And they don't see that at times, but knowing that they'll develop a resilience from failing um, they need to learn to lose. They need to learn to not do things well. And they need to know I'm not going to fix everything for them. Um, you know, we can chat about it later, but um, yeah. I wouldn't profess to be a good parent. I'm doing the best I can and there's no manual in this. So yeah. uh, no, I love the kids. They're great. But um, they'll, you know, ask them in 20 years' time how I did. They'll <laughs> tell you something very different. That's it. That's awesome, mate. We appreciate your time. Just a quick few fire questions to finish up. Uh, Radio. Um Greatest achievement in your time playing and coaching? Uh, probably winning the under-23 World Championships. No one had ever done that before, so that one would have to be high up. Absolutely. Uh, best play you played with? Not necessarily the best play in terms of, um, I guess, um, ability, but just your best teammate. Yeah, uh, overseas, Steve Nash here locally, probably Daryl McDonald. Yeah, we are. Just, just incredible players. The most talented player you played with? Oh, maybe Dirk Nowitzki. Yep, that's good. And uh, last two, best coach you played under? Without Gorge, by yeah. mile, yeah, <laughs> Brian Gorgian, yep. Even above for all the reasons, yeah, by mile, for all the reasons yeah. I've spoken about, yep. Yeah, awesome. And finally, best life lesson from the sport of basketball? You never know who's watching. There's opportunities out there everywhere. You'll miss as many as you, you'll, you'll miss them without no, ever knowing they existed if you're not at your best and you'll realise some opportunities you, you didn't know were waiting for you fit your best. You, you never know who's watching. Yeah. Well, that's awesome stuff, mate. Really appreciate your time on the More Than The Game podcast and all the best. Never know. You might see you in the NBL soon again, mate, but take, take care. And, uh, thanks for you joining. never know. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the chat.